book of Revelation, chapter 1, verses 9 to 20, starting from verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamon and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like a roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet, as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Karen, brilliant. Thanks so much for reading the passage for us. And um, if you... Uh, do have your Bibles open, and uh, Brian just shared the handout on the on the screen on the chat, and it will help you if you have the handout in front of you to follow along. Um, there have been a significant number of church leadership failings in um, in recent history, uh, of which some of you may be familiar. Uh, just last year, Carl uh, Lenz, the ex-pastor of Hillsong, Hillsong New York, uh, was called to step down because of leadership issues and revelations of him committing adultery. Uh, Ravi Zacharias as well, uh, founders, founder of Ravi Zacharias International Ministry, uh, the world-famous apologist. Uh, you know, he was also discovered to be guilty of numerous accounts of sexual misconduct after his death last year. And of course, closer to home, uh, many of you may be familiar, uh, Jonathan Fletcher, one of the leading figures in British conservative evangelical scene uh, was found to have engaged in abuse of power and also possible sexual misconduct. Uh, wh why did it all happen? Uh, let me ask, why? What was it that they had forgotten? Uh, what was it that these leaders needed to remember? Well, the beauty of Covent Garden Lunchtime Talks is that most of us, we, we come from a very good mix of different backgrounds different people from different churches and I probably only know half of the churches that each of you attend but let me ask uh, what is it that all our churches the different churches that we attend uh, what do they need to remember well even as we get online today uh, for this lunchtime talk 
Uh, in one sense, we are not a church, uh, but in one sense, we, we are a church. We are God's people gathered around his word, albeit online. And so what is the one thing that we collectively need to remember? You see, the book of Revelation was addressed to the seven churches in Asia Minor, present-day Turkey, around 90 AD. And for each of the church, uh, they were going through different situations. Some were under persecution. Some were already compromised. And some other churches, well, they were just comfortable. And so the question we will consider this lunchtime is this. What is the big thing that each of the church, whatever situation they're in, what was it that they needed to remember? And my prayer for us as we look at what God is saying to us today was this, that Jesus, well, he knows and he will come to judge. Jesus says, I know and I will come to judge. Well, but before we dive into some of the issues, um, it's going to help you for us to understand the context in which some of these churches operated in the first century. Uh, last week, if you hear for the overview talk, I mentioned the, the triangle tool, uh, the tool that I suggested that when we come to any Bible book, uh, we must first ask what the book meant to the original readers who were reading that. And for the book of Revelation, readers in the first century. And so understanding their situation, well, it helps us to appreciate their struggles and how they would have understood the letter. And none of what I'm saying requires a PhD in in ancient history. Uh, There's a lot you get out of it by simply reading the rest of the letter or by reading the book of Acts. And I guess a quick Google also helps. Uh, So just to give us a rough sense, uh, here are three aspects to know about our first century readers. Uh, Firstly, put it on the screens, uh, the Pax Romana, or the Roman piece describing the 200-year period starting from about 27 BC, running all the way to 170 AD. Uh, It's where the Roman Empire was at its peak. Uh, Then the the orange circle over there, that's where you see the seven churches. And the Roman Empire stretched out uh, into a vast amount of land during that point of time. Uh, It was a golden age of stability and economic prosperity, uh, sustained by Roman imperialism and might. Uh, It's a period where social stability is is paramount and harmony is prized, uh, much like the current world environment that we live in. And so you can imagine, uh, what do you stand to gain if you tow the party line? Wealth, success, and material comforts. We see the the flip side to to maintaining stability is that it benefits the majority, but the minority groups, well, they get crushed. See, it's peaceful for those who join in, but persecution for those who don't. And Pax Romana, uh, the Roman peace, uh, was great for the majority, but painful for the few. And you might imagine where, where Christians fit in. Uh, the next feature to, to know about our first century readers was the imperial cult and, uh, and emperor worship. 
Uh, most of society back then would commonly worship Greek gods like Zeus or Apollos. But not only were these gods worshipped, it was combined with the worship of the Roman emperor. And the picture on your screens there, you can see a coin back in that time. Uh, the picture of Emperor Claudius on one side and the Temple of Artemis on the other. Uh, this picture that the, the gods and the emperor, they go hand in hand with one another. And for different cities around Asia Minor, uh, they would compete with one another to build temples to the emperor. Um, it was a sign or a way for them to show loyalty and gratitude to the Roman ruler. Uh, it's comparable to that irritating co-worker uh, who is always quick to say yes or first to sing the praises of the boss. Or maybe that person's you. Uh, but you, you get that, right? The, the emperor worship existed on a corporate level for whole cities to gain favor with Rome. And... Um, Moreover, the support of this the empire and gods, it took place where different trade guilds had gatherings over networking meals. Uh, so they would come together for meals and, and pay homage to the emperor or to one of the gods. Uh, perhaps it's a rarer commodity these days, but networking was as important for one's career back then as it is now. It's the, the casual conversations down at the pub or over meals. Uh, but imagine having a pint uh, with your, your team uh, while paying homage to Athena or bowing down to a figure of, of, Caesar, of Caesar Augustus or feasting on food that was sacrificed to the idols. And so the question for Christians was, well, should they in involve themselves in such activities? That's the imperial cult and emperor worship. And the third aspect is to know about the Jewish communities. Uh, you see, the Jewish community back then was, well, arguably quite unique. Uh, they didn't engage in pagan worship, or, um, and they had special privileges to keep worshipping their God as long as they pray for the emperor as well. And so when, when Christianity started, uh, the Romans, they weren't able to distinguish between the Jews and the Christians because they all claimed to worship the same God. And hence, they were able to share similar privileges. But if you're a Jew and you hated Christians, what would be the easiest way to get rid of them? Well, you could simply distance yourself from the Christians and you label them as a cult. And that would be the easiest way to land the Christians up in jail. Okay, so three features to understand about the first century readers, Pax Romana, the imperial cult, and emperor worship and the relationships with Jewish communities. Uh, point number two in your handouts, next, the situation of the seven churches. And I, I figured rather than going through each church one by one, um, I thought it might be nice to go into groups just to look at each church um, in one church at, in your groups. Uh, broadly speaking, these, these churches can be categorized into three groups, uh, a half-hearted church, a compromised church, and a persecuted church. Uh, so in a moment's time, Brian is going to be putting you into groups. And I've put a couple of questions for, for you guys to think through in groups. Uh, firstly, get someone to read um, your church out. Uh, you see, should see the church as your, uh, your group name. Uh, so get someone to read it out. Go ahead and rate the church over five. Uh, which cate category would you place this church under? Uh, is it 
a half-hearted church, a compromised church, or a persecuted church? And how will you summarize the main issue in the church? And how does the situation in the first century help you to appreciate why there's an issue? Okay, so we'll give you guys about seven minutes. Um, that should be enough time, I hope, uh, just to look at one church and to discuss those questions. And uh, okay, um, Brian, do you mind putting people in the breakout groups and we'll see you guys back in seven minutes. So, <laughs> so where are we right now? Uh, everyone's just about coming back, so don't worry. Right. Okay, hi everyone, welcome back. Uh, let's hear from, oh, who's the first group? Tyatira, Amanda, is it okay that I call you Amanda? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I can't say we got through all the questions, but okay. <laughs> um, well, let's let's hear it. How do you guys rate? How do you guys rate um, Tyatera? Well, there was a bit of a debate, um, but we thought it was sort of. I think probably the the uh, consensus was sort of four or five um, because of it being one main issue, but it also being a very systemic issue. Um, it was a compromised church. Mm. Um, Summarizing the main issue, oh, I guess from the discussion, it was um, really just tolerating something that had been going on for a long time was clearly wrong, but just this systemic and, and the point was made repeated toleration of it. Um, unfortunately, we didn't get to ENF. Sorry. Yeah, and you read in Tyra that there's this lady um, called Jezebel, um, whether it's her actual name. Um, so I'm just going to remove Spotlight for a bit, just put us into gallery view. Yeah, well, yeah, and we had a bit of a debate about what her position in the church might be because she, you know, she she's calling herself a prophetess, and and it is referred to her teaching. So we thought probably she was in some sort of leadership role. Yeah, interesting, very good spot. In fact, Jezebel, uh, some of the commentators um, suspect that that might be a nickname that John gives to her, mm. might be her actual name, uh, because Jezebel is uh, a queen from the Old Testament, uh, the queen of King Ahab. Uh, who was a really horrible queen. I mean, she pr promoted idolatrous worship uh, back in the nation of Israel. And um, yeah, she was really a sort of domineering kind of wife uh, ruling over her husband. And yeah, it does, it does seem that um, what she was suggesting was like sexual morality and eating food sacrifice, sacrifice to idols were, were okay. Um, and you can hear the appeal of that, right? So imagine you're in a church and someone... Uh, who seems to have someone of influence and tells you that it's okay to, to eat idols and, and participate in what the rest of society is doing. Um, that's appealing because uh, you can join in with all the rest that society is doing and you won't lose out. Uh, so you can sort of feel the appeal of that. Uh, thanks so much, Amanda. And who was the next group? Um, I can't remember who was the next group. <laughs> Uh, let's hear from, I think it was Philadelphia, is that right? Um, someone speak up, who was in Philadelphia? Mark, I'm going to guess it's, it's you, okay. Oh, yeah, no, so um, we didn't think, there wasn't any complaint against the church, um, and if anything, they were commended. Um, they've kept my word with patient endurance, um, but these guys were facing persecution from what, seems to be the sort of Jews, um, you know, in terms of telling them that they're not, you know, God's people. Um, and that that was the lesson that God would teach them 
um, that that you know that these really are God's people. Yeah, excellent. Yeah, and there's a suggestion as well um, that the Jews were trying to keep them out of maybe the synagogue or keep them out of something. This idea of exclusion that was going on. Um, and yeah, I, I suppose the, the situation in the first century was that the Jews were trying to exclude the Christians um, mm. and, and then get them in trouble with the Roman authorities. Yeah, really helpful. And the last group, uh, David, I think you were, you were there. Do you want to speak up for a lot of these here? Uh, tell us how you rated them and anything you found interesting or situation. Not quite sure I got nominated for that, but okay. Um, so uh, we decided that they were, um, well, we could decide between compromised and half-hearted, but half-hearted. I wasn't quite sure how the rating system was supposed to work, so we didn't rate them. Um, they, I think the main issue was one of um, complacency. We're fine. We don't need any help. Um, we're, not, we're, we're rich financially rich. Um, Laodicea was a rich city, lots of bankers, a bit like the city of London. Um, lots of people, presumably a church, a wealthy church, um, financially. And so, so because they were wealthy financially, they didn't really need any help. Um, and so they were, well, they, the criticism was they were lukewarm. They were neither one thing nor the other, no, neither um, hot nor cold. So it was sort of in between, so they're going to get spat out, which yeah. was not good. Yeah, excellent. Um, I think very similar to Ephesus as well, Laodicea and Ephesus, like complacent, comfortable, sort of half-hearted churches. Um, yeah, very helpful. Okay, well done. Thanks for, for all your hard work. Um, you guys doing the work instead of me. <laughs> but I, I mean, I hope you get a sense of, of some of the churches and the situation in the first century, how that really, um, how it was like living back then. And, and yeah, maybe the three categories of a persecuted church, a compromising church, and a comfortable church is a good way to categorize these seven churches. And perhaps one way to summarize the big temptation that all the churches felt, well, was something like this. Well, as long as one person uh, can claim to be inwardly a Christian, their outward actions don't matter. See, it's the, it's the inner belief that matters. Uh, even though I bow down to a statue of, of God, of an emperor, it doesn't matter what I do on the outside. It's what I think inside. Uh, it's all about my emotions, what I feel, what I think. And maybe we can understand that temptation as well, right? I mean, uh, what matters, well, is as long as I've said the sinner's prayer. And even though there's a conversation that I don't want to be part of, well, I might laugh along or not in agreement with the group. But if I didn't need it inside, well, it doesn't count. But of course it does count. It does count. And point number three, so what do the churches need to remember? As I mentioned at the start, they need to remember that Jesus knows and he will come to judge. I looked at verse 12. Then I turned to see a voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. In the midst of the lampstands, one like the Son of Man clothed with a long rope, with a golden sash around his chest, the hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. The eyes, his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in the furnace. His voice, like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full 
strength. And notice who is speaking. Uh, it's a great king. Uh, Describe one like the son of man. Uh, some of you may be familiar. That comes from a reference in Daniel. A great king who will receive authority and rule over from over all the nations from the ancient of days. But not only is he a great king, he's a great priest. Uh, verse 13, he walks among the lampstands like a priest in the temple. He's clothed in priestly garments, a long robe with a golden sash around his chest. He's a great king, he's a great priest, but he's also, well, none other than the ancient of days himself. See, in Daniel, the one who gives, gives authority to the son of man is described as the ancient of days uh, with hair white as wool. But here, the son of man himself has hair like white wool. You see, the point is the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man, they are one and the same. And so imagine that scene with me, uh, if we were John. See, John, he uses similes to describe this great figure, uh, limited by what the English language can convey. Uh, His eyes are like a flame of fire, burning hot, piercingly hot. His searing gaze able to see beyond surface appearances. He sees through the the virtue signaling of the world, but also the pretense of the churches. He has eyes that see. His feet are like burnished bronze refined in the furnace, foundations that have impurities burned away, not like shaky ideologies of our world that come and go. They are secure. His voice, his voice like the roar of many waters, a voice like a clash of multiple Niagara Falls, a booming voice that drowns out the blagging and the empty, empty rhetoric of ordinary men. And his weapon, uh, what is his weapon? It's a sharp two-edged sword, but it's not in his right or left hand, but it comes from his mouth. And so he battles, well, not like the leaders of this world with physical might and strength, but with truth, a truth that dispels falsehoods and deceptions of this world. In his face, his face is like the sun shining in midday in a cloudless sky, which illuminates everything. Well, who is this glorious person? Verse 17. Well, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not. I am the first and the last, the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the king, I have the keys of death and Hades. It's Jesus, the great king, the great priest, the ancient of days, the one who died, but now lives forevermore. And notice what he's doing. Look at verse 13. Uh, He is in the midst of the lampstands. Uh, The lampstands we find out in chapter, verse 12, sorry, verse 20, that they are the seven churches. Uh, He is in their midst. Uh, He is walking amongst the lampstands. Uh, He is present among them. And that's what the churches need to know, uh, that Jesus knows he is present among them. You see, if you were with us last week, uh, we said that Jesus was coming soon, uh, but there's a delay. You see, when Jesus is coming, it's not to find out what happens. Uh, He already knows. He is already in their midst. His coming is not for a lack of information. He knows their works, their willingness to suffer, he knows their compromising behavior. And because he knows, therefore he will come to judge. 
he would judge the bed. To Ephesus, he says, I'll come and remove your lampstand. Uh, to Tyratira, I say, I will come and throw Jezebel onto your sickbed. To Laodicea, he says, I will come and spit you out. Uh, he will also judge the good. Uh, to Philadelphia, he says, I will come and make him a pillar in a temple of God. And to any individual who holds fast, he says, I will never blot you out from the book of life. Uh, Jesus knows and he will come to judge. And did you also notice that um, he is able to judge? Uh, look at uh, verse chapter 2, verse 18, uh, when he speaks to Tyatira. He says, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like flame of fire. And so because his eyes are like flame of fire, look at verse 23, my strike her children did, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches minds and hearts, and I will give you to each of you according to your works. You see, his eyes are like flames of fire. Therefore, he can search the mind and heart. And to the church of Philadelphia, because he holds the key of David, um, he will set the door open that no one is able to shut. See, Jesus, he is able to judge. At this point, I was, I was trying to illustrate this point that Jesus is present. He knows and he's able to judge uh, by um, getting another Zoom account to, to join this call uh, with the name Jesus. Uh, but I thought otherwise because that might be a bit creepy. Um, but the, the truth is it's only creepy because, well, we, we forget, right? We forget that Jesus is present. He walks amongst his churches. He's present with us each Thursday lunchtime. Not only today, but last week and next week as well. Uh, whether you were faithful to him this morning, he knows. Uh, whether we are being faithful to him right now, he knows. See, he knows our actions, our thoughts, and our hearts. And to kind of round off what we were saying at the start, I mean, perhaps that's what Carl Lenz or Ravi Zacharias and even Jonathan Fletcher, well, perhaps that's what they had forgotten. See, despite attempts to delete text messages or to move emails into the trash, well, Jesus, he, he knows and he will judge and that's also what the victims need to remember, victims of abuse. See, hopefully our, our current justice system will be able to uncover as much truth as possible. But at the same time, there will surely be hurt and pain and truth that will never see the light. But in those situations, they can trust that the, the piercing eyes of Jesus, like flame of fire, has seen everything and will judge fairly. And perhaps today as well, it's a timely reminder for us too as we meet each week. Uh, we meet in his presence. And it's a reminder for, for me, even as I lead the work here, that he knows, uh, that Jesus knows. And so what would Jesus say to us? Uh, will he say, because we are lukewarm, we are neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Or will he say, fear not, be faithful, even unto death, and I will give you a crown of life. John the Apostle, he writes, he who has ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Why don't I pray first all time?
Lord Jesus, we confess that we are often ignorant that you know and that you are present. And we often treat you as if you are distant and far away. But Father, we thank you for heaven's glasses that John provides for us. Help us to, to, for us to see that you are in our midst and that you walk among the lampstands, that you know all that goes through our hearts, our thoughts. And we do pray, Father, that uh, you might help us to do all things which honour the Lord Jesus, uh, be it today or in the upcoming weeks. And so we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.